Chapter Twelve, Part One of From Sail to Steam by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Experiences of Authorship, Part One. Before my return from Puget Sound, a new administration had come in with President Harrison, and the War College was once more in favor but its organization had been destroyed and some time must elapse before it could get again on its legs in the summer of eighteen eighty nine a course was held at the torpedo station where i lectured with others the following winter an appropriation of one hundred thousand dollars was made for a college building the old one being confirmed to the training station which continued however strongly to oppose any use of its grounds for the new venture in this it was overruled and in 1892 the college started afresh in what has since been its constant headquarters, 200 yards from its original position. In the meantime, my first series of lectures had been published in book form under the title The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660 to 1783. This was in May, 1890 that it filled a need was speedily evident by favorable reviews which were much more explicit and hearty in europe and especially in great britain than in the united states the point of view apparently possessed a novelty which produced upon readers something of the effect of a surprise the work has since received the further endorsement of translation into french german japanese russian and spanish i think into italian also but of this i am not certain the same compliment has i believe been paid to its successor which carried the treatment down to the fall of napoleon notably it may be said that my theme has brought me into pleasant correspondence with several japanese officials and translators than whom none as far as known to me have shown closer or more interested attention to the general subject how fruitfully has been demonstrated both by their preparation and their accomplishments in the recent war as far as known to myself more of my works have been done into japanese than into any other one tongue in eighteen ninety and eighteen ninety one there was no session of the college during this period of suspended animation its activities were limited to my own preparations for continuing the historical course through the wars of the french revolution and empire with a view to the resumption of teaching i was kept on this duty and i think no one else was busy in direct connection with the institution though the former lecturers were for the most part available it is evident how particularly fortunate such circumstances were to an author for the two years that they lasted i had no cares beyond writing was unvexed by either pecuniary anxieties or interference from my superiors the college slumbered and i worked my results after one season's use as lectures were published in two volumes under the title the influence of sea power upon the french revolution and empire of this work it may accurately be said that in order of composition it uh, was begun with its final chapter the accumulation and digestion of material had been spasmodic and desultory for i had hesitated much whether to pursue the treatment after seventeen eighty three 
the instability of the college fortunes had irritated as well as harassed me if the navy did not want what i was doing why should i persist nothing having been given to the world i had had no outside encouragement and little from within the profession save the cordial approval of a very few officers however during the two years of doubtful struggle i had read quite widely upon the general history of the particular period as well as upon the effects of sea power in the peloponnesian war together with such details as i could collect from livy and polybius of naval occurrences while hannibal was in italy my outlook was thus enlarged not upon military matters only but by an appreciation of the strength of athens broad-based upon an extensive system of maritime commerce this prepared me to see in the continental system of napoleon the direct outcome of great britain's maritime supremacy and the ultimate cause of his own ruin thus while gathering matter a conception was forming which became the dominant feature in my scheme by the time i began to write in earnest coincidentally with these studies and with my other occupations when at first president of the college two introductory chapters had been written one bridging the interval between seventeen eighty three and seventeen ninety three so as to hitch on to my first book the other dealing with the state of the navies at the opening of the french revolution there mr whitney's action brought me up with a round turn when i resumed late in eighteen eighty nine i extended my reading by yomini's wars of the french republic a work instructive from the political as well as military point of view concurrently testing howe's naval campaign of seventeen ninety four by the principles advanced by the military author which commended themselves to my judgment in connection with this study of naval strategy i reconstructed independently howe's three engagements of may twenty eighth and twenty ninth and june first from the details given by james trude and chevalier analyzing and discussing the successive tactical measures of the opposing admirals in the battle of june first going so far as to trace the tracks of the fifty odd individual ships throughout the action this the most complicated presentation i ever attempted was a needless elaboration though of absorbing interest to me when once begun a comparison between it and the bare conventional diagram of trafalgar in the same volumes which has been criticized as not reproducing the facts may serve to show how far multiplicity of minutiae conduces to clearness of perception from the trafalgar plan a reader lay or professional can grasp readily the underlying conceptions upon which the battle was fought and the manner in which they were executed as commonly received but whoever has tried to comprehend the movements of the vessels on june first as i elicited them assuming their correctness it was a mere mental diversion in result rather confusing than illuminative to a student whereas ships arranged like beads on a string can give an impression fundamentally correct and to be apprehended at a glance so far from tending to lucidity accumulation of detail in pursuit of minute accuracy rather obscures nelson himself indicated his intentions sufficiently by straight lines one merit my june first plan may possibly possess 
the perplexing optical effect may convey better than words the intricacy of a naval melee. Coincidentally with the study of military events, connoted by Howe's campaign and Yomini, I, of course, did a good deal of reading, which here can be described only as miscellaneous, prominent amid which was Thiers' History of the Consulate and Empire, Napoleon's Correspondence and Commentaries, and the orations of Pitt and Fox. From Thiers, confirmed by contemporary memoirs and pamphlets and other incidental mention, I gained my conviction that the Continental System was the determinative factor in Napoleon's fortunes after Tilsit. Pitt's speeches taken with his life seemed to me conclusive as to his policy. Despite the evil construction placed upon his acts by Frenchmen of his day, which Thayer has perpetuated, I saw clearly and conclusively, as I thought, apparent in his public words and private letters, a strong desire for peace, and a hand forced by a willful spirit of aggression which momentarily had lost the balance of its reason. Making every allowance for the extravagances of the French rulers, unpractised in government and driven by a burning sense of mission to universal mankind, it was to me evident that their demands upon other nations, and notably upon Great Britain, were subversive of all public order and law, and of international security. Pitt's proud resolution to withstand to the uttermost this tendency, coupled with his evident passionate clinging to peace as the basis of his life ambition, constituted to my apprehension a tragedy, of lofty personal aim and effort wrestling with and slowly done to death by opposing conditions too mighty for man. The dramatic intensity of the situation was increased by the absence of the external dramatic appeal characteristic of his father. It carried the force of emotion, suppressed. The bitter inner disappointment is veiled under the reserve of his private life and the reticence of his public utterance, which gives to his personality a certain remoteness from usual joys and sorrows. But the veil once pierced by sympathy, the human side of the younger Pitt stands revealed as of one who, without complaint, bore no common burden, did no common work and to whom fell no common share of the suffering which arises from disappointment and frustration in ideals and achievement. The conflict of the two motives in the man's steadfast nature aroused in me an enthusiasm which I did not seek to check, for I believe enthusiasm no bad spirit in which to realize history to yourself or others. It tends to bias, but bias can be controlled. Enthusiasm has its place not for action only, nor for speaking, but in writing and in appreciation, quite as critical analysis and judicial impartiality have theirs. To deny either is to err. The moment of exaltation gone, the dispassionate intellect may sit in judgment upon the expressions of thought and feeling which have been prompted by the stirring of the mind. But without this there lacks one element of true presentation the height of full recognition for a great event or a great personality has not been reached. The swelling of the breast under strong emotion uplifts understanding. Under such influence a writer is to the extent of his faculties on the level of his theme. As for biography, 
I would no more attempt to write that of a man for whom I felt no warm admiration than I would maintain friendship with one for whom I had no affection. Doubtless there was also in Pitt's manner of speech, in the cast of his sentences, the style that is the man himself, something which appealed especially to me. Often, when reading in the public library of New York a passage of unusual eloquence, I would be strongly moved to rise on the spot and give three cheers, and I heartily subscribed to a Latin motto on the title page of the edition I was using. If you could but have heard himself. But it was more than that. A story increasingly impressed itself upon me. I saw him conscious of great capacities for the administration of peace, an inner conviction of far less ability for war, with a vision of Great Britain happy and prosperous beyond all past experience under his enlightened guidance, of which already the plans had been revealed and proof been given, and over against this the palpable reality of a current too powerful to be resisted, sweeping her into a conflict the end of which, amid such unprecedented conditions, could not be foreseen. Also, despite all his deficiencies for a war ministry, as I read and studied the general features of the situation with which he had to deal, I became convinced that the broad lines of his policy coincided with the military necessities of the case, to an extent that he himself very possibly did not realize. For as the Directory outlined Napoleon's continental system, so Pitt, unknowingly perhaps, pursued the methods, as he definitely predicted the means, exhaustion, by which his successors brought to a stop the mischievous energies of France under the great emperor. Thus, before I began to write, my leading ideas for the historical treatment of the influence of sea power during the period 1793 to 1814 rested upon an approval of the main features of Pitt's war policy, and sympathy with his personal position, upon a clear conviction of the weight of the continental system as a factor in the general situation, and of its being a direct consequence from British maritime supremacy and upon a sufficiently comprehensive acquaintance with the operations of the land warfare up to the Peace of Amiens, having as yet written only the two introductory chapters, and Howe's campaign being strictly episodical, the work as an organic whole was still before me when the summer of 1890 arrived. It was then thought probable that the college would at once resume, and in order to be at hand I settled my family in Newport, there addressing myself to my new lectures. Considering the mass of detail through which my hearers must be carried, I thought it advisable to begin with an outline statement of the general political and military conditions, and of their sequences, a rudimentary figure, a skeleton, the nakedness of which should render easy to understand the mutual bearings of the several parts and their articulations so most surely could the relation of sea-power to the other members be seen, and its influence upon them and upon the ultimate issue be appreciated. Before I began, I remember explaining to a brother officer my conception of the continental system as the culmination of the maritime struggle, which in a narrowly military sense had ended with Trafalgar. 
the light thus cast would illuminate afterwards each of the several sections of the history treated circumstantially in order of time in short i here applied to the whole the method of my diagram for trafalgar and not of that for june first the result was the chapter last in the work as it now stands but the first to be composed a few months before book publication this chapter appeared in the quarterly review under the title pitt's war policy chosen by me to express my recognition that the grand policy was his that in it he was real as well as titular premier and that in my judgment despite the numerous errors of detail which demonstrated his limited military understanding the economical comprehension of the statesman had developed a political strategy which vindicated his greatness in war as in peace the article ended as the chapter then did with the well-known quotation particularly apt to my appreciation the pilot has weathered the storm the few subsequent pages were added later by an odd coincidence just as i had offered the paper to the quarterly one under the same title by a foxite came out in another magazine somewhat discomposed i hurried to look this up but found as from the nom de plume might be presumed that it did not take my line of argument but rather as i recall that of pitt's opponents which macaulay has developed with his accustomed brilliancy although to my mind with profound misconception and superficial criticism fox's speeches had made upon me the impression of the mere objector indeed i felt this so strongly that i had written of him as the great but factious leader of the opposition in proofreading i struck out factious as needless and as a generalization on insufficient premises it was not till the following december eighteen ninety that i began the two chapters next in order of composition on the warfare against commerce these occupied me late into the winter covering as they did the entire period seventeen ninety three to eighteen fourteen and embracing a great deal of detail taken together these three chapters final but first written contain the main argument of the book the naval occurrences brilliant and interesting as they were are logically but the prelude to the death grapple pitt's policy stood justified because naval supremacy established by war secured control of the seas and of maritime commerce and so exhausted napoleon not till this demonstration had been accomplished to my own satisfaction did i take up the narrative and discussion of warfare land and sea thus the prelude followed the play my memory retains associations which enable me definitely to fix the progress of the work thus the chapter on the breast blockade from its characteristics long continuance and incidents one of the most interesting of the purely naval operations was composed in the summer of eighteen ninety one at richfield while the campaign and battle of trafalgar the last done of all passed through my hands in april eighteen ninety two in richmond virginia where i then was on court-martial duty this second book was written under much more encouraging circumstances than its predecessor and with much greater deliberation the first occupied me little over one year 
The second, though covering only one-fifth the time, was in hand three. There were long interruptions, it is true. The Puget Sound business, and the writing of a short life of Farragut, but the chief cause of delay was a much more extensive preparation. This was owing largely to the crowded activities of the brief twenty years treated, and still more to wider outlook. I attempted, indeed, nothing that could be called original research. I still relied wholly upon printed matter. But in that I wandered far. The privilege was accorded me a free access to the alcoves of what was then the Astor Library, now, while keeping its name, incorporated with the New York Public Library, and I rummaged its well-stocked shelves, following up every clue, especially memoirs, pamphlets, and magazines, contemporary with my period. From the estimate I had formed of the effect of commerce upon the outcome of hostilities, it was necessary to digest the statistics of the times, much of which existed in tabulated form, and for commercial policy, the state papers and debates in Parliament, as well as in the French National Convention. I now had not only interest in my task, but pride, for the favorable criticism upon the first sea-power book not only had surprised me, but had increased my ambition and my self-confidence. It was a distinct help that there was no expectation of pecuniary advantage, no publisher or magazine editor pressing for copy on which dollars depended. I now often recall with envy the happiness of those days when the work was its own reward, and quite sufficient to almost as good as a baby. When there were no secondary considerations, however important, to dispute for the first place, I have never knowingly let work leave my hands in shape less good than the best I can turn out but I have often felt the temptation to do so, and wished, almost, not quite, that there was no money in it. I recast Dr. Johnson saying, none but a blockhead would write unless he needed money. None but a blockhead would write for money unless he had to. Though not embarrassed by publishers, I found a more formidable enemy on my tracks in 1892. There had been a change in the Bureau of Navigation, and the new chief, under whom the college was, thought my help to it less necessary than my going to sea. To an advocate of allowing me time, he replied summarily, It is not the business of a naval officer to write books. As an aphorism, the remark is doubtless unassailable. But with a policy thus defined, my position, again to quote Boson Chucks, became precarious, and not at all permanent. That my turn for sea service had come was indisputable. I could pretend to no grievance, but I did want first to finish that book. Yet I have recalled with happiness that I was enabled to work steadfastly on, my pulse beating no quicker for fear I should be interrupted and my task left unfinished. I remember a Boston publisher telling me of the anxiety felt by one of his distinguished clients, lest death should overtake him before that which he had planned was completed. The feeling is common to man, and one is touched by the apparent tragedy when men of promise and achievement are so removed, their aims unaccomplished, 
as were recently Professor Rawson Gardiner and Sir William Hunter. But it was given me early to realize that there is no such thing as being cut off unbetimes. If I were called at the end of a day's stint, or the pen fell from my hand in the midst of it, that which was appointed me was done. If well done, what mattered the rest? This quietness came to me through a chain of thought. I had been experiencing, as many others have, the weariness of a long-winded job, the end of which seemed to recede with each day's progress, and there came to my mind Longfellow's village blacksmith. Toiling, rejoicing, sorrowing, onward through life he goes. Each morning sees some task begin, each evening sees it close. Would it were so with me. And a voice replied, Is it not so with you, with all? Since then I have understood, though the flesh is often weak, and even the calm of the study cannot always exclude the contagious fever of our American pace. In the particular juncture the Secretary of the Navy, Mr. Tracy, took my view of relative importances, and time was secured me. The manuscript was complete by the late spring of 1892, and the book published in December, having meantime been used for lectures in the first session of the college in its new building, a renewal of life which has since proved continuous. During this interval occurred another presidential campaign. Mr. Harrison was defeated, and Mr. Cleveland elected. I was now ready to go to sea, but by this time had decided that authorship had for me greater attractions than following up my profession, and promised a fuller and more successful old age. I would have retired immediately, had I then fulfilled the necessary forty years' service, but of these I still lacked four. My purpose was to take up at once the War of 1812, with the history of the preceding events still fresh in my mind, and in this view I asked to be excused from sea duty, undertaking that I would retire when my forty years were complete. The request was probably inadmissible, for I could have given no guarantees, and the precedent might have been bad. At any rate, it was not granted, luckily for me, for by a combination of unforeseen circumstances the ship to which I was ordered, the Chicago, was sent to Europe as flagship of that station, and on her visit to England in 1894, occasion was taken by naval officers and others to express in public manner their recognition of the value that they thought my work had been to the appreciation of naval questions there. This brought my name forward in a way that could not but be flattering, and affected favorably the sale of the books. The previous readers, of which had seemingly been few, though from among those few I had received pleasant compliments. Upon this followed the conferring upon me of honorary degrees by the two universities, D.C.L. by Oxford and L.L.D. by Cambridge. After my return in 1895, L.L.D. was extended also by Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, in the order named, and by McGill in Montreal. Another very pleasing and interesting experience while in London was dining with the Royal Navy Club. This is an ancient institution, dating back to the middle of the 18th century. 
its list of members carries many celebrated names among others nelson it has no clubhouse and exists as an organization only meeting for dinners on or near dates of some half-dozen famous naval victories the anniversaries of which it thus commemorates yearly there is by rule one guest of the evening and one only who is titularly the guest of the presiding officer but on this occasion an exception was made for our admiral and myself unfortunately he who was much the better after-dinner speaker was ill and could not attend the rule thus remained intact and i have understood that this was the first time in the history of the club that the guest had been a foreigner end of chapter twelve part one